Roman numeral three there. What is the motive for evangelism? So, um, really, there are, there are two motives that should motivate us to evangelize. The first is love to God and concern for His glory. And the second is love to man and concern for His welfare. So the first, first motive, of course, is primary and fundamental. The chief end of man is to glorify God. The biblical rule of life is do all to the glory of God, 1 Corinthians 10.31. So we glorify God by obeying His Word and fulfilling His revealed will. The first and great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And uh, Jesus said in John 14, 21, He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Um, so keeping, uh, keeping God's commandments is, is a, the way that we love God and glorify him. John wrote in 1 John 5, 3, This is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. So uh, Jesus says in Mark 13, 10, the gospel must be proclaimed to all nations. So that's an imperative, that's a command. God, the gospel must be proclaimed to all nations. And of course, Matthew 28, 19, which we're familiar with, go therefore make disciples of all nations. Uh, and so, and, and to that command, he adds a promise, a comprehensive promise. He says, I will be with you always to the end of the age. Which makes it clear that the goal is, it's a third person plural, you go and make disciples of all nations, that that, uh, to whom that promise was given, was not solely or exclusively to those 11 disciples. Because of the promise that I will be with you always to the end of the age. Uh, The promise extends to the whole Christian church throughout history. And the entire community, which the 11 were, of course, a, a, uh, really the founding members of the uh, Christian community. But if the promise extends to us, then the commission, which is linked to that promise, is also extends to us. Uh, we glorify God by evangelizing, not only because evangelism is an act of obedience, but also because... In evangelism, we tell the world what great things God has done uh, for the salvation of sinners. And that, of course, brings glory to God. And we tell people about the great things He's done. In Psalm 96, 2 and 3, it says, Tell of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all the peoples. So for a Christian to talk to the unconverted about the Lord and His saving power in itself is honoring and glorifying to God. The second motive which should prompt us to evangelism is to love our neighbor and the desire to see our fellow man saved. Uh, to To meet their spiritual need of salvation. And it's really a it, it really is it's kind of an outflow of our love for God. 
that we love our neighbor. Uh, and it's natural, you know, it's natural for us to share good news, isn't it? I mean, when, when good news comes to our lives, we want to tell other people about it. Uh, I remember when, uh, when our first daughter was born. It's like I couldn't wait to tell people, you know, about that. Uh, and, you know, in 2 Kings uh, 7, there's a, there's a story about uh, Samaria is under siege. And, there's a, and the, the, uh, the, the uh, Syrian army has, has Samaria under siege. And it causes, they, they're, they have a, a supply chain problem, you might say, back then. Nothing was getting in or coming out. No food going in. And it caused a tremendous famine in the city of Samaria. And there were, there were, uh, it got so bad that, that they were actually resorting to cannibalism to survive. And there were, there were four men who were lepers that were outside the city gate. They weren't allowed to go in because of their leprosy. So they're out there. They've got, and they said to one another, it's like, what are we doing here? You know, if, if we go into the city, there's a famine there. We're going to die. We got the Syrian army out here. Uh, we might as well take a chance and just go out to the Syrian army and see if they'll feed, feed us. You know, what do we got to lose? I mean, if they kill us, we're going to die anyway. And so they do. And they walk out. When they get, and what happens is when they get there, everybody's gone. But they've left all their stuff. I mean, all their goods. They left their clothes, their food, gold, silver, everything is just laying there. And what the scripture tells us is, is what they heard, what the Assyrian army heard, when those four men were walking, to them it sounded like chariots and a whole army of people coming, and they all fled. <laughs> of course, of course, that God was doing that. But they get up there and they see all this stuff, and they're just immediately, you know, they're grabbing gold and silver and going out and burying it and going to the next tent and finding more. And, and all of a sudden they're saying, wait a minute. You know, what do we? This this is good news here. We need to go back into Samaria and tell our brothers and sisters about this, so they can come out, and they do. But it's just an account that you you, you don't sit on good news. You know, you tell it to other people. And what greater what greater need does our fellow man have than the need for Christ? It's their greatest need. So that second commandment was love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, who is my neighbor? Well, yeah, it so happens that that's the... <laughs> I'm preaching on that sermon this morning, you know, that parable of this good Samaritan. Who, who, who asked that question, who is my neighbor? Uh, so I won't give that away yet. <laughs> but God has put people into our lives for a purpose for a specific reason. I mean, it's, nothing happens by accident. We, don't, we, we as Reformed believers don't believe that. We believe in God's providence. And that God's, God brings people around us for a reason. It's no accident that we, many of us, moved here from someplace else. <laughs> it's not by accident that God placed us here. Uh, he wanted a church here. <laughs> you know? So he brought people here. 
to establish a congregation and a church. And he brings people into our lives for a, for a purpose. And so it's beginning, it's, it's, it uh, requires for us to sort of think in those terms. It's like, well, why am I here? Why is, why is this person my neighbor? Uh, those kinds of things. And the principle, you know, the principle about uh, loving our neighbors applies to all forms of need. Material need as well as spiritual need. But oftentimes we focus on the material and disregard the spiritual need in people's lives. It's sometimes easier to do the, the material stuff and not as easy to, uh, to, work, to, to focus on the spiritual in a person's life. I mean, we're all grateful for the love that Christ has shown us, the grace that he's shown us in our own spiritual lives, uh, that he saved us from death and hell. And uh, so it's natural for us to have an attitude of compassion and care for other people who are needy spiritually. Paul declared in 2 Corinthians 5.14, For the love of God controls us. In other words, it, 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 it compels us to share the gospel. The love of God compels us. So he says in verse 16, For now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. In other words, we're not, we're not just looking at people in there as a, as a physical being, but they're also spiritual beings. They're, they're a person who's been made in the image of God. Even though that image is marred, that's who they are. And... Uh, so we don't look on them in a different way anymore. It's, 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 uh, Paul was sharing last week. You know, the battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against principalities and powers in, in the heavenly places. So that person who doesn't know Christ isn't our enemy. He's, he's, been, he's a slave to the enemy. And we have the opportunity to tell him about how he can be free from that. It was natural for Andrew, when he found the Messiah, to go off and tell his brother Simon in the, in the gospel there. And for Philip to hurry and break the news to his friend Nathaniel. They didn't need to be told to do this. They, they just, it was, it was naturally and spontaneous. Uh, just as one would share with one's family and friends any other piece of good news. Now, personal evangelism really should be courteous, you know, and normally founded on friendship. That's the natural way evangelism should work, as a part of a natural relationship with a person. So, just as it's natural to, you know, have a relationship with your neighbors next to you on each side, uh, or people you maybe uh, have play place uh, golf with or something like that some other kind of relationship those those kind of form naturally and that's and those are the ways in which God works primarily through relationships that have been established uh, I think I think I mentioned about the two problems the two problems the non-christian has one he doesn't know any Christians and, and that's kind of the part of that kind of is an indictment on us uh, if we don't have any non-Christian friends. Uh, some, if you have a non-Christian friend, you may be the only Christian the person knows, you know, because they don't travel in those circles. Uh, 
The other problem is, for the non-Christian, they do know Christians. And it hasn't been a positive experience, you see. Uh, and, and that's why I say evangelism should be courteous and responsive to the other person. You know, when, when uh, maybe you've had experience with people or you've seen it done or you've, you know, I have probably done it. I mean, you know, I told you about the door-to-door thing. Well, I, that's not, that's, that's very impersonal, you know. Uh, or, but you've seen people who have, who, uh, you know, sort of back up the dump truck and just dump it. Just unload right there and keep talking and keep talking even though the you can tell the person's not interested and like to get away. The person just keeps going and keeps going. That's, uh, that's impersonal evangelism, not personal evangelism. And it gives, it gives Christians a bad name. Uh, it creates resentment and it prejudices people against the gospel. Dean, yeah. For giving an example of that, in 99, Ethiopia, you were moving into an area where no Westerners had ever settled before, at least in recent memory, that community. And when we first got there and began making relationships, we found that we were against an inertia, prejudice, against any Western Christian. And Western Christians were called Penti, which was their derogatory term for Pentecostal. Because Pentecostals had come through there at some point in a, a big circus show evangelism tour and basically offended everyone. Uh, just like you said, back at the dump truck, we all had, just kept talking and left. And uh, a few people joined the circus and started really coming to some churches around. But for the most part, the Ethiopian Orthodox believers in the area were horribly offended. And they assumed that we were there to shoot steel and to bring the Pentecostal sort of in your face message. That wasn't our intent. Yeah. But we had to sort of undo the work of those. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Yeah, it's it's a good example. And uh, you know, it happens the same way in this country <laughs> with people doing doing those kind of things. Uh, now, back in the seventies, when I was when uh, I was a new Christian and excited about the good news, I wanted to tell people. <laughs> so we had this group. They went door to door, and and. You couldn't do that today for sure. People wouldn't even open their door. But, but in the 70s, they, they, they were friendly and opened the door and talked. But it's still impersonal. I don't know that person. They don't know me. It's not the most effective means of evangelism. It happens primarily through, through relationships. Uh, again, you know, you, um, we have to earn the right uh, to be heard when it comes to these kind of things. Because we're talking about personal, what's inside a person. Those kind of things that you know, uh, you have to win the right to get to that point. And that takes time in, in a relationship building. Which gets us to um, the next thing now, which is by what means and methods should be made to practice.
so there's, there's always, uh, at least for the past decades, there's been a sort of a controversy over methods of evangelism and, and uh, as uh, we've shared before, the evangelistic meeting, the special meeting, you know, where it's a revival or a crusade or a big evangelistic event like that where you got, it's pretty slick, uh, emotional. Uh, this is this is why a person from a person who disagrees with that view would present it this way that that it's just it's just slick it's just emotional just produces spurious conversions that isn't they're not real conversions people may walk forward do but they're not really haven't really been changed on the inside uh, and that it inoculates people to the gospel it's kind of like the COVID vaccine you know you get a little bit of the you get a little bit of the of the infection. To build up antibodies, you know, to create antibodies. Well, that's what happens with a, with this kind of a message. That's the the criticism that it inoculates people to the real thing. They haven't gotten the real gospel, but they think they're saved. And now, any any effort to reach them, they bounces off because they say, "Well, I'm already say I, you know, I've heard that before. I'm already I'm a believer." You know. Uh, on the other side, people who uh, hold to those methods, criticize other people by saying many churches and major denominations are failing in the evangelistic responsibility. That uh, these kind of meetings may be the only opportunity for presenting the gospel to a vast multitude of people. And the way ahead is really not to abolish them, but to reform the abuses of those methods. So let's go behind the controversy and isolate the key principle that should guide us in our assessment both of these and any other methods of evangelism that may be practiced or proposed. So what is the key principle? Well, we said that evangelism is an act of communication with a view to conversion. In other words, whenever we're sharing the gospel, our intent is that that person would repent and believe. They would respond with repentance and faith. That, that's our intent. So it's a communication with a view to conversion. So in the last analysis then, the only means of evangelism is the gospel of Christ explained and applied. And we've talked about how both of those are important. The explanation and the application. Applying it. That is, calling people to repentance and faith. And that's, that is, that's the response of the gospel. Faith comes by hearing, Paul says in Romans. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Uh, the New, New English Bible kind of expands that verse and says, Faith is awakened by the message, and the message that awakened it comes through the Word of Christ. Um, you know, it's interesting that the, the Greek word for the word word, the Word of Christ, is not logos, as you often find it in the New Testament, but it's rhema. And rhema often refers to a spoken word. Uh, and I've always seen this as, as that when the Gospel is presented, that and it's it's presented it's explained and applied when all that's taking place the spirit of god is 
working in that person and uh, calling them. You might say the call. When Paul refers to our calling or the call of Christ, he's referring to this idea that that this rhema of Christ, the word of Christ, is speaking to that person. And what's happening is that that's, that's, that creates regeneration. That, that brings a person to new life. And that God, through that, then opens their eyes and opens their ears so they see the truth, they hear the truth, they hear the call of God and respond. And so God is doing that when the gospel is being presented. You know, Paul says in in Romans 1, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation. The gospel itself is the power of salvation. Paul's not the power of salvation. The the proclaimer is not the power of salvation. The gospel itself is. And and when, when that is presented, God is working in that person's heart and calling them to faith and renewing their hearts and opening their eyes to see the truth. So, the only means, really, is the gospel explained and applied. That's the, that's the means of evangelism. Again, in the last analysis, the only agent of evangelism is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's through Christ himself who, through his Holy Spirit, see, enables his servants to explain the gospel and apply it powerfully and effectively. So not only is God working in the hearer, but he's working in the proclaimer too to help them to explain that clearly to people. Let's look at... uh, Luke 24. Um, I don't think that's the right verse. Let's skip that one. <laughs> uh, Acts 16. Let's go to Acts 16. And Acts 16 is uh, Paul in Philippi. And uh, he's he's a uh, sharing the gospel to, to people who are gathered together there. And it says, uh, verse, 20, verse 14, One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. 
the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul was saying. You see, there is there's God working in the person's heart as the gospel is being shared. The other, the other passage uh, speaks about the same thing, only it speaks about opening the person's mind, opening their mind. So that's, that's God acting and opening hearts to receive the gospel and draw them to himself. In Romans 14, 18 to 19, Paul speaks of his achievements as an evangelist as, quote, those things which Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed in the power of the Holy Spirit. So Paul is saying, you know, it's Christ who is doing this. I'm just his instrument. He just, he's just used me as his instrument. That those things which Christ accomplished through me to bring the gospel, uh, to bring the Gentiles to obedience. As, uh, as Packer points out in his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, he says, uh, quote, Since Augustine, the point has often been made that Christ is the true minister of the gospel sacraments and the human celebrant acts merely as his hand. We need to remember the equally basic truth that Christ is the true minister of the gospel word and the human preacher or witness acts merely as his mouth. So it's just God is using the person to present the gospel, but then God acts in the gospel presented to move people. So in the last analysis, there's only one method of evangelism and that is the faithful explanation and application of the gospel message. So the test for any proposed strategy or technique or style of evangelistic action must be this, will it in fact serve the word? Will it serve the word? Will it, in other words, is it, is it true to Scripture? Is it true to the facts? Is it calculated to be a means of explaining the gospel truly and fully and applying it deeply and exactly? And to the extent it's calculated to do, to do that, it's lawful and it's right. And to the extent that it obscures the realities of the message or, or to uh, blunt the edge of the application, then it's uh, ungodly and wrong. And oftentimes, I think the, the, the problem is on the application. You know, we want to sort of blunt the, blunt the edge of the application. Uh, because that's where that's where the tension comes when you're when you're sharing the gospel. Let's get to the point where, okay, here's what you need to do, you know, and here's why. Uh, that oftentimes the gospel is soft pedal when it comes to that point, and you get into an easy believism type thing rather than true repentance and a change of life. Uh, you know, talking about the real cost of following Christ. Mm-hmm. Is it legitimate to say that there are uh, the gospel message can, can sort of present its own spectrum of, of brightness? Uh, you know, 
faithful application and explanation. Uh, frankly, I, I've heard some presentations that are more faithful, more better applied than others. Right. So is it, is it reasonable to say that kind of on the spectrum of how well it's explained, uh, we can get to a place on the spectrum where it, it's explained so insufficiently, the Lord is not working through that thing. There's other places where it's explained so insufficiently, but it's uh, good enough. <laughs> okay, it's the job done. I mean, there's real believers who have come out of Billy Graham crusades, okay? It's a whole lot that I think we're spurious. But, but you know, there's, there's legit conversion experience that come from, frankly, a very weak presentation. Yeah. Yeah. And that's true. I mean, you know, God does what God's going to do in the, in the, in the presentation. Uh, and we can't, we have no control over that. But we have control over how well we know the message, you know, and how clearly we can communicate it. And so, uh, we don't want to say, you know, okay, what's the minimum I need to do in order to make that effective? We, we want to be as effective as possible in presenting the gospel and explaining it and, and, uh, and applying the, you know, what's necessary to respond uh, to the gospel. Uh, but that's true. I mean, there, there are people who have come with not much <laughs> information, but God is, God is sovereign over that, you know. Uh, and that's why we can't. You know, um, we can't see. You know, it's it's not our place to say, "Well, I believe this person is really saved." I don't think that person is really saved. In some ways, it, I mean, obviously, in in some types of behavior, you can you can make that maybe make that distinction. But you have to know the person pretty well to to determine that. Um, But that's you know that uh, judging that is God's is, is God's bailiwick, <laughs> not ours so much. Ours is to be faithful to the message and present it and uh, uh, leave the results to God. But what we're what we're talking about here is is being as effective as possible in in explaining the gospel and applying it in people's lives. So when it comes to methods, then uh, is to evaluate our practices of evangelism. Well, let's, let's work this out a little bit. Um, and I've, I've, I've on my sheet are uh, some questions that we could ask in evaluating the gospel presentation. So let's let's. Uh, talk about this. First, first question is, is this way of presenting the gospel calculated to impress on people that the gospel is a word from God? This is a word from God. In other words, it's not a, it's not a discussion where we're each sharing our opinions, you know, about this or that, like you, like you talk politics with a person or something like that. But we want, to, we want to impress on people that, you know, this is what God is saying. This is, this is God's word here. This is God's message to us. It's not my opinion. It's not what I think. It's what Scripture says. It's what God has revealed in His word. So, 
does it divert their, does it does it divert their attention away from man and merely uh, human things to God and His truth? That's that's a, something we have to ask ourselves in terms of evangelism. Is it or is it a tendency rather to distract the attention away from the author, God, and the authority of the message to the person and the performance of the messenger? You see, that's, that's, that's a mistake, and that's what often happens um, with these slick presentations. It's all about the performance. And your, your mind is taken away from God and the, his, as the author of this word and the authority to the performance of the messenger. Doesn't make the gospel sound like a human idea. Or a preacher's plaything, you know, uh, or like a divine revelation, which uh, the human messenger himself stands in awe of the message. Does this way of presenting Christ smell like human cleverness and, or showmanship? Does it extend? extend uh, does it tend to exalt man? Or does it embody a straightforward, unaffected simplicity of a messenger who is, whose sole concern is to deliver his message and who has no wish to call attention to himself, but simply the message? Second, Again, is the, priest, is the way of presenting Christ calculated to promote or impede the work of the Word in people's minds? Does it promote or impede the work of the Word in people's minds? Is it going to, is it going to clarify the meaning of the message or leave it obscure and locked up in uh, pious jargon? Is it going to make people think and think hard about God and themselves in relationship to God. You see, that's what we want to happen. That's what the message should do, is to get people to think hard about God and about their relationship with God. Because that's the issue here. Or does it tend to stifle thought by playing on emotions? And the emotions of the driver rather than the mind. Is it calculated to stir the mind or put the mind to sleep? You know. It's not that there's anything wrong with emotion, by the way. Be, it would be strange for a person to be converted, you know, without emotion. Uh, because they've just, they've just been transferred from darkness to light. Uh, it'd be, there would be some emotion with that, but... Uh, What's wrong is a, is a sort of appeal to emotions and playing on emotion as a substitute for instructing the mind. Three, is this way of presenting Christ calculated to convey to people the doctrine of the gospel? And not, ju not just a part of it, but the whole of the gospel. The truth about our Creator and His claims and about ourselves as guilty, lost and helpless sinners needing to be born again. About the Son of God who became man and, and dies for sins and lives to forgive sinners and bring them to God. 
or you know as a deficient in that area and sort of deal with half-truths and leave people with an incomplete understanding of these things and hurry them on to the demand for faith and repentance without fully understanding what they're doing without having it made it clear what they need to repent of and why they ought to believe and what they ought to believe Okay, it's 10.15. I guess we'll stop there. We'll pick that up next. Be sure you bring your sheets back with you next, next Sunday. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you have uh, entrusted us with the gospel. That your plan and your means, Lord, is to bring the gospel to others through your people, through your followers. And we're, we're, we feel privileged, Lord, but we also feel a sense of responsibility to be accurate in our presentation of the gospel and to be compassionate and, and yet serious about it, Lord, and people's response. So uh, thank you for entrusting it to us, Lord. May we uh, be faithful. And now we, we think about the service to come, Lord. May we sense your presence and your power, Lord, as we come to worship you in spirit and truth. In Christ we ask. Amen.